Having trouble staffing up? You're not alone. Our industry is facing an unprecedented labor shortage, and tech will play a central role in solving that problem. Yelp Kiosk was built in 2018 for restaurants who couldn't afford to pay a dedicated host. In 2021, Yelp Kiosk is supporting restaurants that want to do more with less. By adding Kiosk, your host is no longer trapped behind the host stand, enabling them to assist in all front-of-house operations. Learn more about how Kiosk can help your restaurant at restaurants.yelp.com forward slash kiosk. Now here we go. Sometimes when you teach even virtual classes, it can go over a lot of people's heads and it makes them feel intimidated. So for me, it was not only an opportunity to connect with other people in my home, but it broke down the barrier of chefs. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators, served up on the house. We've all been burned. A bad business plan, a bad business partner, a global pandemic. But what happens next is what defines our lives and our careers. Chef Claudette Zepeda built an award-winning restaurant only to have it taken away. But rather than seeing that as the end of the story, she began a new chapter, leveraging her talent and her experience to create the career of her dreams and a platform to help others achieve the same. Today, we unpack the lessons learned on that journey and discuss what the future holds for her, her team, and the industry at large. It's funny having friends all over the world that are in our industry and hearing them speak about their like 30-seat restaurant or 50-seat restaurant and being the kind of like weeded and the problems that they had. And in San Diego or in Southern California, our footprints are much larger for restaurants. No one gets into the business to make a million dollars, to become a millionaire, because I think it starts you off on this very naive foot that you just can't dig your morale out of when you realize that it's a grind and you have to be 100% committed to lose some cash at the beginning. Every restaurant, everyone knows to be these grand institutions took 10 years to even become even or profitable. So for me, El Jardín, we were cranky. Here at Vaga, we do 130 covers a night, and we do them seven days a week. At El Jardín, we would do like sometimes 20 on a Monday, on a Tuesday, and then on the weekends, we would do 400 for dinner. So it was just very like the ebbs and flows, there weren't any. It was just these crazy highs and lows. And Without the proper from like the ground up, those concepts are really hard to do, especially with a food concept that is similar to Southern food where people don't really place value on it. So you have to turn and burn and you have to make everything fried and what people know, because if you make them uncomfortable, it's a whole other shit show. I think the footprint definitely needs to be smaller. The vision needs to be clear and everyone just has to like batten down the hatches and realize that you're not going to make a million dollars on the first year that you hope to break even and you hope to not lose your ass. But you really have to, your business plan has to have like a five year adjustment period where you don't fuck with it until you have like the foundation is set where people know what they get when they walk into your place where you don't say one thing and do another and every month you're changing because you're realizing I'm not making money here I'm going to buy everything we made like for us we were making everything every single day and that's just how I run my operation 
there's so many components that go into making something successful, but I really think the biggest part of it is just willing to go through the suck for a few years. When you walked away from that experience, were there any lessons you took away from it? Like, oh, I would double down on this. I would definitely do this next time. And I would never do this again. And what kind of insights did you walk away with? I said that I would never do another Mexican concept in California again. (laughs) Well played, chef. Well played. (laughs) Especially this close to the border. No one gives a shit about how long it takes for us to make it. They just want it fast and they want to throw it in our face that they could just cross the border and pay a quarter of the price when the guys next to me are in a like a new American concept making pozole and selling it for $24. But us doing pozole at 18 with like pork cheeks that have been braised and smoked and loved on for days, they lose their fucking minds at 17. It was incredibly hard every single day to go in there and going to tables and asking for people to see worth in us because we were doing a Mexican concept. No one wanted to get it. And it was like, I don't care what you think. Like you must really think a lot of yourself was something that we got often. But my takeaway was, okay, we're not evolved enough in this part of the world to do Mexican food and call it Mexican food. We just call it global cuisine because that's really what Mexican food is. That was the biggest takeaway that people weren't ready in this area. My second takeaway was never get into a partnership with someone that you didn't really know. Yeah, that's a big You're one too. You're married to them, yeah. For sure. And then the pandemic hits, and I'm curious to know, how did that inform the way you saw success going into the next venture, which is Vaga? I mean, the pandemic did a lot of things for a lot of people, I feel. I am in the group that really came out of 2020 thankful that 2020 happened in the sense that it re-solidified my purpose in life and in this industry. I did a lot of editing and what I want to do and what I want to say with my food or in this industry, how I want to leave with, the picture was a lot more clear. It's never been about being famous and being on TV and all this stuff. It's never been that for me. Those things afford opportunities for my employees that I wouldn't otherwise have. So I take them and I take them in stride and I'm a pro, but that's not what drives me. What drives me is after 2020 was helping people see the best in themselves and heal the traumas that our industry has caused them and giving them like a safe space to be able to be vulnerable, to ask for help and to grow. So becoming, you know, I started researching the word humanitarian and like what that means. And we were raised with humanitarians being rich people, philanthropists and all these VCs, but really humanitarian is just a caring for other humans. And at the core of who we are in in kitchens, for the most part, at least my friends, is we just want to feed people and make them feel good. And then that has transpired to our team because I can't. So it bridges everything together. And I treat my employees better than I treat my customers. And that's saying a lot because I treat my employees like if they were family. So my guests are just as lucky. And then how did that inform your next step? Why did you choose to go to Vaga? What opportunity did you see there? especially within the confines of the fact that it's within a beach resort. Yeah. After El Jardín, I had my own scars and a little bit of trauma of a really bad partnership that didn't see value in in a culture that they wanted to exploit, essentially. He wanted to exploit. And I chose Vaga after meeting with the owners. I had several meetings with the owners, and it was them choosing me. It wasn't like the Hyatt machine 
it was owners looking at me and seeing a value in what I had to give. And I was comfortable. I firmly held my boundaries on what I was okay with doing and what I wasn't okay doing. And all I asked for was complete autonomy and in the creative sense, uh, fully encompassing the entire property that can be. So down to the little bud face and the natural flower, it's all handpicked by me to make sure that that same story that went throughout El Jardín is the same in Vaga. It's still my space that I live and move in, but it has a really solid foundation being in a property that I don't have to worry about my checks bouncing. I don't have to worry about making payroll and being able to pay for this supplier and that supplier and like robbing Peter to pay Paul the way we were doing it and independent. It afforded me a sense of security that I have never had being in the independent world, but it let me still keep that independent autonomy. So that was the biggest reason why I chose to take it was a sense of security within the owners and the partners here and Hyatt backing me up in my kind of like holistic mama bear approach to how I run the spaces. And it didn't feel like it did when I opened El Jardín. I felt very much trusted into doing what I've like, let the chef do what she does, not micromanaged. And you can't beat the view, but definitely being near the ocean helps. For sure. It seems like you've carved out a really unique opportunity there. What has always, I guess, unnerved me about being in the restaurant industry is I know what I'm good at and I know what I'm great at. And yet as a restaurateur, I do a lot of stuff that I'm not good at, that I'm not great at. I just can't afford to pay someone else to do it. Like if you knew anything about me, you'd be like, that guy definitely shouldn't be managing his own or anyone else's social media. Right. And <laughs> truly, I don't speak that language. I didn't grow up with that shit. It's just not my bag. And yet still, like I found myself day after day, week after week, these contrived, desperate posts like, hey, I'm trying to speak the cool kid language. And it's this terrible scenario we find ourselves in where you know what your circle of genius is, right? You know what your core competency is, and you spend much of your time living outside of it. And so in terms of your role, are you actually able to just focus on putting out world-class food and someone else worries about paying the bills and someone else worries about seating the dining room? Is that the scenario? Because if so, are you hiring? <laughs> That's what they would like. They would like me to not look at the other moving parts of the operation. But because I come from an independent background, I do worry about that stuff. I am giving them an opportunity, like coaching opportunities for our management in the front of house and going like, okay, this, you put six, two tops or two, six tops right next to a four top, then an eight top. You're going to crush the kitchen. Like, let's move this reservation and show them how to do that engineering that I had to do by myself. And that creates a stronger front of house team down to how they drop food. The servers have their skill set. For me, I always want to have people that are way smarter around me. And then it's, okay, you're really good at this. I'm good at this. Let's put this together. And outcome definitely is usually something great and something that the younger generation can look at going, oh, okay, yes, that's how you do it. And we develop new habits. I think people that come to my space expect to see me everywhere because I've set that precedence for like, that's my fingerprint, that it's full service, like if you were coming to my home. So I do delegate and I do let them do what they do, but I am still kind of like, Tell me why. You know, I'm always asking those questions of like, I still want to at least be able to speak to the numbers or to 
understand how an operation this big can be successful. That would be my next question is based on your position within the company overall, how do you find success for your role? I think that's a everyday an everyday search. <laughs> <laughs> I'm such a student of life and I'm always trying to figure out how to be a better me. I'll be the first to admit everything that I'm not good at. But I find success in my role by the smiles in my kitchen and the smiles in the dining room and the comfort level of my staff. That for me is success in my role, that I'm making a container, a space where everyone can just come in and do their job and feel that they've did it to the best of their ability without being micromanaged. And seeing like those little blossoms of someone that had been through this industry, you know, I've been doing it 20 years. I have my own trauma and my own scars that I work on. But seeing someone that have come into my space and how they started and three, four months later, how they blossomed, that for me is success in my role. Because the food is just a byproduct, right? Like the food, I don't worry about it. I'm like, the menu's fine. Like we'll figure it out. Like I just kind of brush it aside. I'm worried about the execution. I'm worried about how it's going to affect the line cooks. Because if they're in this pit of despair because I completely screwed them into a corner by doing something that is hard, I lost them. And then you can taste it. Good food is a product, a byproduct of happy people. Well, that leads to the next question, which is how much time do you spend on your business as opposed to working in the business? It's always a delicate balance, especially in back of house. Yeah. And at this position too. Actually, today was the first day. I don't know if you know the Lee Initiative. Mm -hmm. So I have my mentee just arrived today. And we were just talking about this. It's like you get to a certain point in your career where everyone talks shit about the desk chef role. But in order to be a successful operator, you have to have control to the organization through the logistical side. So there comes a point where you can be this hot shot shit chef that you just stand there, take pictures, kiss babies. But if you don't know how to operate Excel and how to do a proper organizational sheets for your team and you set them up for failure, you're responsible. I'm responsible, right? So a lot of my mornings is spent making sure our organizational charts are ready for like this weekend. We're just going to get crushed with events. So I'm sitting today is my desk day where I'm making sure all the logistics are done. Monday, we're doing this. Tuesday, we're doing that. Wednesday, in order for Friday to be as successful as possible, we're operating at a resort property with 12 kitchen employees. So I have to keep the control so we can be successful. Like what we do, I'm always amazed. Like I'm humbled and amazed at what we can produce week after week with 12 people that are very happy at their job. Let's talk about balance. In addition to running Vaga, you're also responsible for the culinary programs for the pocket pool and bar and the coffee box at the resort. How many hours are you putting in a week? Uh, I mean, the numbers are scary. I try not to think about it that way. I try to think of like checking in with myself. But today I got here at nine. I'll leave at midnight. Tomorrow I'm here at six. I'll leave at midnight. And then so the story goes. But some weeks are that. And like last week, I took Saturday, Sunday off to take my kids to Disneyland. So there is a balance. I think I have struck it enough because of the environment we've created here where my cooks tell me, please don't come in. Like, we're good. Like, the freezer crapped out at 2 o'clock in the afternoon yesterday, and I didn't hear about it until midnight where he just said, we figured it out. We just want to let you know. So in case you get here and you see a 90-degree freezer, we got it covered. But the balance is trusting people to do their job and letting go. 
and speaking what is like loving to me. Some weeks it's a hundred hours, which is unheard of for a chef at this level, like to still pull those hours. But because I have created that environment here, there's also weeks where I don't have to come in if it's slow. The team's got it. And do you see things leveling out to the point where it's 40 hours a week on average at some point over time, hopefully (laughs) for all of us? Uh, (laughs) Well, at least for me personally, the industry, I don't know, we're kind of screwed right now, but yes, I do. I heard this once and it says that your goals aren't big enough unless they scare you. And my goals scare the shit out of me. And that's what keeps me getting up every single day. It's never done. I'm never okay with the status quo. I'm always thinking of what other thing can I learn? What other thing can I teach? How can I become a better person and become a better mother and turn become a better leader? So yes, the goal is to maybe even less, maybe really turn this into that creative position where I let them be their best selves. And I am here as a fairy godmother. When I got into this, the goal was always to work at the best places. Then it was to own my own place. And then it was to own two places. And then it was to excel in other tiers of dining. And so it snowballs. And it's the path for all of us for the most part. And one of the things that the pandemic did, for me at least, was it was a gut check. This is everybody's path. Is it mine? Is this how I want to spend the rest of my life? You talk to guys like the Ari, the founder of Zingerman's, and that's a dude that went super deep instead of going super wide. And there's so many different paths we can take. And I'm curious to know, especially considering, Lord knows you're working a lot, but it's also a great position for a chef to have, especially as the world reopens post-pandemic. Do you see yourself opening another brick and mortar on your own, like F this, I'm not going to go the corporate route. I'm going to sweat it out in my own brick and mortar. What do you think? I have a concept that is aligned with the social change that the Henry Crown asks of its fellows. And it's bigger than me. It's a concept that can really go worldwide and uh, has a 501c3 arm to it. And that is, we talk about, I mean, I'm sure you think about like, when you leave this earth, what are you contributing? What is your legacy going to be? And my legacy is people and like who I help, but on like a bigger picture. Like food is just a vehicle that drives the conversation. It's how I communicate. It's my love language is service to others. And the transition of that is, yes, there will be one day a brick and mortar. I will never not have at least 51% of anything. And that can be that I don't put one cent in also. I just never want to be in that position again where I am disposable because when you're the talent, you're the driving force. And if someone doesn't see that value in you and wants to give you some bullshit 5% sweat equity that you don't actually start earning until your fifth year, like, fuck out of here. Like, it's not conducive to creating a good partnership. They have to trust you to run the ship because also people aren't dumb and they see when it's just this fake it till you'll make it concept or if it's something that's authentic to the person. I talked a lot when I was making oh how do they know what the words authentic and traditional mean? Like for me that doesn't mean anything when they attach it to like traditional Mexican. That stuff doesn't exist. Every family has a tradition. There are African Mexicans, there are Jewish Mexicans, there are Greek Mexicans. There's no way we all eat the same. Like it's an impossibility. And when you talk about authentic Mexican, well what does that fucking mean? Because authenticity is very, very singular. 
end. Life isn't static. It moves forward. So that constantly evolves as we evolve. So the end game is to touch more lives, to get a bigger net of the people that I can have in my house or feed. Does that make sense? It does. I think it's a very noble cause. To pivot to something that feels totally unrelated, but I swear in my mind it makes sense, is virtual cooking classes. You offer them on your website. And it seems like a really great way for chefs to like democratize chefdom and like share themselves with people outside of the restaurant. And so when you talk about reaching out and touching lives, it seems like a really accessible way for people to get to know you and, and learn from you, both ideologically and culinarily. Did that evolve out of the pandemic? And is that something you intend to continue? Um, It was definitely a result of the pandemic. I was going crazy, not cooking. I was going crazy, not interacting with people. Creatives are self-deprecating to a fault. Nothing they do is good. Like, I'll be the first to put a plate in front of someone. I'm like, oh, this is shit, but I hope you like it. Like, we're not confident. None of us are. I don't know any of my friends that are just like, I'm a fucking badass. Like, we might say it, but we don't believe it. When it got to a point where I realized that my mental health was so badly affected by not having human interaction and not traveling and finding out things that I hadn't seen before and going to markets that I hadn't been to before and having them, the group of people that signed up for these classes in my home and allowing me to be this like clumsy self that no one really gets to see. And I was vulnerable and I was like, but I forgot this. Hang on. And showing them how to feel confident in the kitchen. Another thing that some chefs just don't understand is sometimes when you teach even virtual classes, it can go over a lot of people's heads and it makes them feel intimidated. So for me, it was not only an opportunity to connect with other people in my home, like my dog took a shit in my kitchen on one of the classes and I was like, oh my gosh, she was a puppy. And it was, it was this real moment where I'm like, man, my daughter's going to clean up the dog shit. My bad. But it broke down the barrier of chefs. I was like, listen, we are just as messy as every other person in your life in this world. And I want to make you feel as comfortable as possible. So all the recipes I created were foundational. I was like, so this is what you have. There's so many times that I hear people say, well, the chef had like 20 ingredients and I only had five. So I didn't make it. Like I wanted to give people the confidence in their kitchen to be able to riff every chef that I know creates recipes mostly out of accident. I use this term now, accidentally delicious, when people go, oh my God, that's so good. I'm like, I have no idea. I don't know what I did. And it's just a byproduct of being comfortable in a kitchen, so comfortable that you just kind of become the sweetest chef and your arms are jumping up and down. And out of that comes a great dish. People should have that confidence. This is an industry podcast. And at the end of every episode, I like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the audience. There are thousands of restaurant owners and operators listening. And I'm wondering, do you have any advice or words of encouragement you'd like to offer? Oh, man. There's so much that I'm seeing in this post-pandemic world in the operations of the restaurant and the hospitality industry. And more and more people reach out to me because they see us doing yoga on the line or they see my pictures of family meal. I stopped putting so many pictures of food on my Instagram because I want to show that I'm more than just my food. I'm an actual human being that has these ebbs and flows and loves lots of different things. And it's not just food. You can go to the restaurant page and that's just food. But me, I'm a human. I'm a mom. I'm a cook. But really, I think the industry needs to really look at 
themselves in the mirror as a whole and hold themselves responsible for what they've the spaces that they've created that have become these really toxic environments. And the phrase, the customer is always right. You really need to look at that and dissect those words and hold customers accountable for being assholes. Like there's no reason why anyone should be mistreated ever, like ever, 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 ever. But people that pay for a service like food feel this entitlement to treat people however the hell they want. And it's not okay. I think as an industry, well, we really need to see the behaviors that we've allowed in our space. And some people might tell you to go F off if you go talk to them about it, but go to that table and let them know this is the space that you now are moving in. It's not okay to treat people that way. And there's a door. Be okay to lose some people that are just going to come in constantly and be toxic. It's okay to lose those people because I guarantee you, for me, I'm a firm believer that you get what you give. If you hold your boundaries and don't let people abuse your employees, you're just going to get better customers. And another thing is you'll get loyalty from your employees because they're going, oh, shit, they actually value me enough to stand up for me. That right there is worth its weight in gold. Like, there's no price that you can put to that. Unless the leader is willing to do that same shit job and be treated like shit, don't let your employees be treated like shit. Like, it's not cool. As an industry whole, we need to think of, like, is what you do today going to affect you? Or you're going to think about it two days from now, an hour from now, a day from now. If it's not, then drop it. We're just moving forward. There's no time to look back. So all you can do is, like, make the reparations and move forward and try to keep building spaces are loving to everything. That's Claudette Zapetta. For more on The Chef, go to chefclaudettezapetta.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.